Hi, my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow. And I'm Jesse Spur. Welcome to another episode of Five Things Nursing. And today we're joined by Therese McCurry, who is the breast cancer clinical nurse consultant here at the RBWH. And we're going to talk about five things to do with breast cancer. Welcome, Therese. Thanks for having me. We're really happy to have you. Um, We'd love to hear your origin story, your nursing background and everything that's happened since then. So I started my nursing here at the Royal Brisbane over in the old hospital, uh, 9D. I did my last prac here. Uh, that's the haematology bone marrow transplant ward. So I did my third year nursing prac there and was just really keen to get a job there. And thankfully I was employed. Uh, so I spent a couple of years in haematology uh, bone marrow transplant. I love the high acuity nursing. So was really keen to sort of get a bit more exposure to that. So I went to emergency. I went up to Toowoomba there and just loved that experience in emergency, but was really keen to get overseas. So I went over to the UK and I spent about four years there in London, um, specifically for a while in emergency, but the the London experience was great, but the emergency experience doing agency nursing in all different emergency departments across London, I found quite challenging and pretty brutal, to be honest. Yeah. So I was pretty keen to get back to my oncology roots. So thankfully, I got given a job back in a haematology oncology unit and I stayed there for quite some time. Uh, loved it, but was keen to get back to a Brisbane and I came back to the Royal Brisbane. I think a lot of us do, <laughs> uh, particularly if we grow up here. So I came back to cancer care services and uh, bounced around a few different places. I was back on 5C. Then I went to the day unit, CNCF, uh, eventually a nurse unit manager. And then kind of accidentally, I landed a job in cancer care coordination, but very fortunately for me. And I've now probably for about the last eight years exclusively looked after breast cancer patients here at the uh, Royal Brisbane Hospital within a cancer care coordinator, clinical nurse consultant uh, place. And I really, I really love that work. I really love developing rapport with my patients, um, advocating for and with them. Um, and I feel, I feel really privileged to be able to get to know women in that fairly crucial part of their diagnosis and treatment journey. Uh, more, more now I'm more interested as well in uh, really understanding the system and the challenges we have within the system. So I've recently completed a grad cert in health sciences, health innovation. So really getting to understand sort of uh, our models of care and our systems so that we can influence uh, change and challenging the status quo there. And I've been working on some projects within the breast cancer space specifically for our patients that uh, need to have chemotherapy first and neoadjuvant breast cancer patients. Wonderful. So, Therese, I think this is a really important subject we're talking about today because I don't know if there's a person alive who hasn't known someone or been impacted directly by breast cancer. So, let's get straight into it. So, your number one is, what is breast cancer? 
So breast cancer in very simplified terms is a cluster of cells behaving badly in a disorganized way, which will form a lump. These lumps either form within the lobules, which is where the milk is made, or ducts where the milk flows, and they'll commonly um, form a lump that a patient might feel or cause changes to the breast or pain in an armpit and uh, then cause the patient to go to the uh, doctor. As you rightly said, breast cancer is really common. It's the most common cancer diagnosed in Australian women, second most common cancer diagnosed Australia-wide behind prostate cancer. And uh, it's also diagnosed in men, which is uh, sometimes a misconception. One in 555 men will be diagnosed within Australia. So you've mentioned that breast cancer is the most common cancer behind prostate cancer. Um, What is the actual incidence of breast cancer in women in Australia? So one in seven women, um, unfortunately, will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. One in seven. That's unbelievable. And do those rates go up as you get older? Yeah, absolutely. So the most common risk factor for developing breast cancer is being a woman and also (laughs) an ageing population. So 75% of breast cancer occurs in women over 50. So com- most commonly occurs in a postmenopausal woman. And is that why, you know, you reach a certain age and they're saying, you know, go and have a mammogram every couple of years? Absolutely. So over 50, you know, you will be invited to go to breast screen and it's encouraged over 40, but you won't get that actual invitation to go along to breast screen. Okay, perfect. These days you hear a lot about genetic risk. Um, That's obviously, I'm guessing, kind of a relatively new discovery within breast cancer. What can you tell us about genetic risk in breast cancer? Yeah, so I think this is a common misconception. I meet a lot of women that think that it's a lot higher chance of developing, you know, a genetic reason might be uh, the reason that they develop a breast cancer. A genetic uh, inheritance only relate, only accounts for about 5 to 10% of breast cancer. So 85% of breast cancers are kind of just bad luck. Right. So those 5 to 10% that might have uh, inherited a genetic uh, mutation from either their mother or father, most commonly BRCA1 or BRCA2. So those mutations might be picked up because they've developed a breast cancer, so more commonly in a younger uh, patient Uh, they might not have any family history and we just incidentally find that they actually do carry a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation or there's a known family breast mutation and and then we develop, find out that they then in fact have developed a breast cancer. A BRCA1 or 2 mutation increases a patient's lifetime risk of developing breast cancer to up to 60%. Yeah, wow. For a BRCA1 or 2 and 20% uh, lifetime risk of developing ovarian cancer and in a male carrying one of those gene mutations will certainly increase their risk of developing a male breast cancer and increase their risk of developing a prostate cancer by about 20%. Yeah, okay. But I'm, cu- I'm curious about that. I'm going to circle back around. So 85% of all breast cancers actually aren't genetic. And so you will hear people, who, especially over the age of 50, saying, I haven't had a mammogram, but we don't carry the gene. You know, no one in my family's got it. That's not a good reason to not go and have a mammogram. No, absolutely not. You should be still doing your self-exams yourself and, yeah, getting along to to Breast Screen Queensland or wherever you're located, whatever your screening organisation is, yeah, and through your GP too to make sure that there's nothing there because commonly you might not even be able to feel the lump and, and catching a breast cancer early will certainly increase, you know, your treatment options and then survival. Yeah. And so it's not just, you know, you may not be able to feel a lump but there's some other things that you can look at a breast and think – 
okay, that's a, a, a cue that I need to go and get that investigated. What what are the sorts of things we should be looking for? Yeah, so if you're looking in the mirror and you don't think that there's symmetry, certainly if there's uh, discomfort, pain, uh, inversion in the nipple, uh, pain in the armpit, definitely would be all uh, reasons to seek some medical advice. Perfect. All right, Therese, so your number two are stages and types of breast cancer. Now, this is interesting to me because everyone always says, what stage is it? But we don't know what we're talking about. What is stages and types of breast cancer? Yeah, so certainly I agree. It is quite confusing, certainly for health professionals and patients. I think I'll start with the stages. And again, this is really simple, simplified version because this can in itself get really complicated when you're staging a, a breast cancer. So stage, so it goes zero, stage zero to stage four. So stage zero is traditionally a pre-invasive um, cancer cell, so still within the breast sort of tissue. And a stage zero might still need some treatment, so surgery, plus or minus um, radiation, but wouldn't be considered invasive or malignant. Stage one is usually a breast cancer that's less than two centimetres in size. Stage two is usually larger than two centimetres. Again, I'm really simplifying this. There's some intricacies to these levels of staging two. Stage three is traditionally that the breast cancer is spread sort of out of the breast to the lymph nodes, which would be the first place that a um, breast cancer would go. And stage four, unfortunately, is when the breast cancer is spread out of the breast and lymph nodes to other organs. So uh, breast cancer likes to sometimes go to the brain, bones, liver and lungs. And unfortunately, if breast cancer goes to one or any of those organs, it's, it's, been, it's often... And hopefully this will change and we are seeing some data around this, but um, it will be considered in, incurable and that will be called metastatic breast cancer. Okay. So that's the kind of stages of breast cancer. What types of breast cancer are we likely to see? So, yeah, often there is also a lot of uh, misconceptions about breast cancer being one disease, but actually breast cancer really is many, many, many different diseases and and the treatment is quite individualised based on what type of breast cancer you have. So when we're looking at a breast cancer cell under the microscope, we might grade, this is just one way of looking at initially, grade the cancer cell under the microscope. So one being that it's a lazy cell, uh, two, that it's starting to grow a little bit more quickly and grade. Um, three, that it's grading quite fast and perhaps behaving a little bit more aggressively. We also stain the breast cancer cell to see what type of receptors uh, uh, light up on the breast cancer cell. Again, really simplified, but we're looking for estrogen, progesterone and the HER2 receptor. So if the breast cancer um, has estrogen and progesterone uh, positive receptors, we call it a hormone positive breast cancer in that it would grow in a hormone rich environment. So it's stimulated by a patient's um, own hormones. And HER2 receptor means that the, the breast cancer grows with a particular protein called HER2. So knowing one of the specialists that I work with often talks about knowing what type coloured marbles a breast cancer is made up of. So depending on what type coloured marbles are within that breast cancer cell, we know what type of treatment to give those um, particular breast cancers. So hormone positive being one, HER2 positive being one, and then if there's no positivity to any of those receptors, we call it a triple negative breast cancer. And traditionally that type of breast cancer would often be considered more aggressive, although it does respond really well to a lot of our treatments, particularly chemotherapy. So that landscape is also changing. Hormone, posi- uh, hormone positive is the most common 
the type of breast cancer to about 70% of breast cancers will be hormone positive. I think it's about 30% in the HER2 setting and about 20% also rough in the triple negative. There's also combinations of all of those. So you can be hormone positive and HER2 positive, et cetera. So it's like many different diseases. Hence the 70, 30 and 20 not adding up to one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that doesn't even make sense, does it? No, it, may, it, it makes, makes sense. sense. But, yeah, but, but the disclaimer. Yeah, but I guess the really important take home here is that not all breast cancer is the same, and so we can't say, "Oh, I know someone who had breast cancer and they just sailed through and they hardly had any time off work, so therefore that's what all breast cancers are." That it's really important that we understand stages and types. Um, can you explain, like, how do you know, like, how, this is probably oversimplifying, but curative versus metastatic, like? You know, like what do we un- need to understand about that? Yeah, so if if a breast cancer is technically um, below a stage four, so even if it's spread to uh, the lymph nodes, we would still be calling it a curative breast cancer. So um, the, the treatment is very aggressive and um, we'll be hoping that everything we're doing is to decrease the breast cancer from ever returning. Unfortunately, in a metastatic setting, and again, I hope some of this is changing and we've seen the landscape of breast cancer treatment really change in the last five years. So um, maybe sometimes with some particular types of metastatic breast cancer, we might be able to consider chronic disease for some. Um, I'm nervous saying that because that's sort of not always the norm. But traditionally, um, once the breast cancer has moved out of the breast and the lymph nodes into another organ, um, it's considered not curable and all of the treatment is um, to try and keep all of that treatment and all of that cancer cells at bay but not completely gone forever unfortunately. Yeah okay so that's that's kind of that staging so is anyone who's got a stage four cancer that is a metastatic cancer? Yes. Across different cancer that's types? It. Yes. We've been careful to kind of explore the nuances of this without going down too many rabbit holes. But I guess one of the key points when we're talking about stage four metastatic breast cancer is that it's it becomes a much more complex conversation about really aggressive therapy potentially having more burdens than benefits. So it's not to say there's not still some cases that it, it may end up being a very essentially a curative approach intent to treatment, but the burdens that come with those therapies are pretty bad, aren't they? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and depending on the age of the patient and their other comorbidities, it has to, you know, always influence, you know, what what treatments um, the team and the patient are willing to endure. And certainly we we do see that um, in some of our younger women that, that might only have very minimal disease outside of the breast, the intent to treatment, you know, can definitely not always be black and white. And, and we're considering the individual and, and exactly like you said earlier, Liz, every breast cancer um, patient will be given an individualised treatment plan based on their um, their individual circumstances in terms of what, what comorbidities they have or don't have as well as um, what particular type of breast cancer they have, where it was, what um, nodes were involved, the position of the breast, et cetera, and the treatment will be adjusted accordingly. Yeah, and I, and I think that's the thing. Like the big take-home message is, is that this, you know, not all breast cancer is the same. There is a huge variety of what can be causing the breast cancer and then how it's going to be treated and that will be tailored every time individually. Absolutely. 
All right, so number three is breast cancer treatments now and in the future. And I think you've probably titled that, I'm going to try and guess, because this is a really rapidly expanding environment, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And thankfully, um, in the setting of early breast cancer, treatments continue to improve and we are seeing um, more and a more individualised approach. And currently, we're looking at about a 91% um, survival um, rate for women with early breast cancer at five years. And that landscape's also changing, as I've previously mentioned in the metastatic setting. I think in the last five years, we've got an additional seven drugs on the market for all of those different types of breast cancer that I mentioned earlier, so hormone positive targets. This is specifically in the metastatic setting. We have seen some new drugs become on the market for early breast cancer, which is a really exciting landscape, um, both for us as nurses working in, but also for, for patients as well. Is it my imagination that, you know, when I think back when I was younger, you know, when people got breast cancer, most of them lost their breast or had a double mastectomy. Are we doing that less now or, or am I wrong? That's a really good question. Yes and no. So breast cancer treatment is multifaceted and, and multimodal rather. So traditionally in an early breast cancer setting, so in, in a cura- with a curative intent, um, we will need to use often, depending on the size of the breast cancer, surgery, plus or minus chemotherapy, plus or minus radiation therapy, um, and also hormone blocking tablets, um, which also need to be used. And the ordering of that treatment kind of depends on the size. So if, if a patient, and particularly a young woman, is diagnosed with quite a large breast cancer, we might give chemotherapy first now and that, that landscape's kind of really been expanding over the last five years in an area I'm particularly interested. So we might give that chemotherapy first to downstage the operation so that hopefully women might get away with not having to have a mastectomy and they might be able to have a wide local excision instead. So if you're getting your chemotherapy first, then you might hopefully proceed on to a um, surgery, which might be a wide local. It might not. So it depends on, A, the genetic um, situation. So if you carry a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation, you will be recommended to get a bilateral mastectomy um, just to try and de- decrease that chance of a breast cancer coming up later in life. And obviously, if your breast cancer is... Uh, is quite large to begin with, with extensive nodal involvement, you might not be able to avoid getting away with a wide local excision just because of the location. And and that might even be the case if we do chemotherapy first. So yes, we are trying to not just give everyone a mastectomy, but equally it's kind of really individualised to the patient and and the particular breast cancer they've been diagnosed with. Ah, so that, that cl- I've got a close friend who's just been going through all of this, sadly. Um, and that's why they're doing the chemo first. They're trying to shrink that tumour to a point that you can save the breast. What were you calling it? I've, I always, people call it a lumpectomy. I'm sure that's very common. What were you calling it? Oh, sorry. I, I use the term wide local excision. And then I think, so we call neoadjuvant um, breast cancer chemotherapy where you go pre-surgery and then adjuvant chemotherapy is post-surgery. I don't know if I mentioned that word, but yeah, definitely lumpectomy is right. So it's either wide local excision or lumpectomy, kind of the same thing. And then neoadjuvant means chemo before surgery and then adjuvant treatment is post-surgery. All right. So I know there's no such thing as common treatments, but what sort of options do you think most people look at? 
Yeah, so again, it, it does depend on the size of, of breast cancer and the type of breast cancer that a patient might be diagnosed with. But probably traditionally, most commonly, a patient would undergo surgery first. And if uh, that surgery was a wide local excision or, as you said, a lumpectomy, uh, radiation would always be considered as a package deal. So if you have a mastectomy, you might often avoid radiation. So radiation is used as local control, so to prevent the breast cancer coming back where the breast cancer formed. Again, I'm really simplifying this. Yep. And um, so if you've had a mastectomy, that's kind of removing all the breast tissue there and, and hopefully you know decreasing the chance of breast cancer coming back there. So if, if not all the breast cancer tissue has been removed, then the package deal would be uh, wide local excision with the radiation. If you're going to need to have chemotherapy, so chemotherapy will be used in a breast cancer patient. Traditionally, if the cancer is bigger than two centimetres, certainly if there's lymph node involved, and if the breast cancer is HER2 positive or triple negative chemotherapy, depending on the patient's age and comorbidities, would usually be offered. So chemotherapy would usually be after the surgery and prior to the radiation, except if it's given first. And then the hormone blocking tablets that I briefly mentioned before happens after the radiation treatment is finished. Can I ask a really dumb question? If, I, if you've had a mastectomy... Can you still get breast cancer? Is it is it still called breast cancer if it comes back and it's in other parts of the body if you no longer have breasts? Like how does that work? Yeah, so you can still get a breast cancer back into the chest wall tissue or certainly back into the lymph nodes and the breast cancer could come back in other parts of the body. Yeah, okay. So the chemo... Yeah. But it reduces... It, like after you've lost the breast, it reduces the chance because you don't have breast cells is that oh yeah you would hope you would hope that it would never come back but yeah. i guess all of the treatment we give there's no guarantees that a, a, an individual won't get breast cancer back again so we would hope that we're putting through people through this pretty um confronting and um side effect provoking treatment regimens to hopefully decrease their significantly decrease their chance of recurrence but it can't it unfortunately can still happen yeah so it seems to me like I'm going to try and get this right. There's surgery, chemo, radiation, anti-hormone and targeted therapies. Is there anyone who gets the whole package? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. So really full on. Uh, the targeted therapies are kind of inserted in the – whenever the chemotherapy um, is inserted, but they can continue on post the the radiation treatment too. So if, if you're particularly a younger woman – um, the triple negative cohort that I mentioned, um, people that are diagnosed with larger cancers and certainly with nodal involvement will usually be up for all of those modality, modalities of treatment. Wow. And so a young woman, <laughs> what, what does that mean? Like, because, you know, as I get older, <laughs> you know, what does... You, you want to know what side you're <laughs> on of this conversation. Yeah, I do want to yeah. know. But like what, what does younger mean for you? Is that under 40 or... What would you I mean, that, that's a really good question. Currently, I am certainly looking after breast cancer patients here within the Royal Brisbane uh, in their early 20s yep. uh, through to women in their 90s. Yep. I say women. Um, most of my patients are women. I do have some men. But, yeah, so early 20s to 90s. Um, I think under 40 usually, you know, we're thinking about has this breast cancer been caused by a genetic um, mutation and, and it often isn't, but we're thinking about that because it's more common to see sort of a breast cancer, as I said earlier, 75% are often in the postmenopausal women. So it's more uncommon 
for a younger woman to younger woman to get breast cancer. So therefore, we want to go fairly aggressive um, to try and decrease that the chance of that breast cancer coming back. So often, the chemotherapy, particularly, is being used to decrease the chance, kind of like an insurance policy to to both if it's used before surgery to shrink the cancer but also to hopefully get rid of any tiny little cells that might have escaped out of that primary tumour um, and prevent them sprouting up later down the track. So we sort of go really aggressive, really hard to try and get rid of any of those tiny microscopic cells that no scan would yet see. Yeah. Now we, we dangled the future carrot in the, in the intro to this section. Um, what are the hopes of the future of breast cancer therapy? Well, certainly even just in the last three years that we've really changed with new treatments becoming coming on board and kind of changing some of the chemotherapy protocols, which I think is really exciting and, and causing kind of less toxicity burden for patients in some instances. Certainly in metastatic setting, some of the hormone positive breast cancer women have got lots more options now to not have to have chemotherapy and have some really exciting oral agents that are, you know, seeing really good response to, to tumour burden. But also hopefully um, in the future there is some technology around and even some research currently happening where a breast cancer, when a patient's diagnosed, the breast cancer cells will actually be tested genomically, like whole genome sequencing or just specifically a panel to see what actual treatment that breast cancer will respond to. So we might be able to individualise. I know I've spoken a lot about all breast cancer patients' treatment is individualised, but even more specifically to their actual cancer cells so that we can know specifically what to prescribe. So what chemotherapy might actually, that particular cancer might be sensitive, sensitive to. So hopefully we might see that specific precision oncology come and it's and it's happening in other tumour streams and it's a little bit away currently for breast cancer so that we might be able to sort of in real time get a sense of actually and then perhaps avoid giving some treatment to patient that we know has you know really large toxicity burden and individualised to maybe a nicer gentler chemotherapy um, protocol. So using a sniper rifle rather than a shotgun. Yeah, absolutely and, and you know... Uh, yeah, decreasing that burden, but also perhaps more um, sophistically treating the breast cancer mm. and, and not over-treating perhaps. We, we might perhaps currently, based on clinical research and evidence, but do a little bit of over-treating based on sort of, you know, the small piece of the puzzle that we know. Which is why that, you know, we hear all the time about research around breast cancer is important because there are developments all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really exciting space definitely. You've already touched on a little bit about just how burdensome some of these treatments are for women Um, and you know we're talking about women from their 20s to their 90s so people who have other lives and careers and children and study and and all those sorts of things. Your number four is around complications of breast cancer treatment and I think this will be particularly interested for our nursing listeners about what sort of things you know, may they see um, someone come in for and how what happens? Yeah, sure. So unfortunately, despite all of these evolving treatments and evolving lands, um, treatment landscapes, the treatments for breast cancer are usually really long in duration and can impact on multiple body systems and amounting to significant decrease in quality of life for, for women and, and men undergoing breast cancer treatment. So um, 
I feel for nurses, as nurses, um, we it's really important that we can develop a, a rapport with patients and really advocate for them through that treatment journey. Commonly for a young woman that's diagnosed, um, we know that breast cancer chemotherapy does age a patient's eggs by about five years. So if we're un- going to undergo chemotherapy, we might commonly be considering fertility preservation, which in itself is quite a traumatic process to go through, let alone just having been diagnosed with the breast cancer. So commonly our patients will be coming through the system for fertility preservation. Breast cancer chemotherapy makes you lose your hair, pretty much all of it, um, all of the protocols that we use in a curative setting. So certainly um, alopecia, you know, is going to happen, um, the chemotherapy um, protocols have significant impact on patients' blood count. So they might be coming through the hospital with neutropenic sepsis, so infections, wound complications post the surgery, fatigue, nausea. A lot of our chemotherapy drugs cause quite significant peripheral neuropathy, nail changes. Women can lose all of their fingernails and toes, which can be incredibly uh, traumatic. Obviously, um, particularly if the breast cancer is growing in a, you know, is a hormone positive breast cancer, we need to, you know, make the patient menopausal. So making someone chemically menopausal, you know, at any age can cause some mood changes, irritability, um, you know, achy bones and joints, which I think is is really troublesome for, for our patient cohort. Getting kicked while you're down pretty hard, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and women are often, um, you know, talking to me about, you know, that being a really troublesome and, – and if you've got a previous mental health um, – condition and then we throw on a diagnosis of breast cancer plus the treatment certainly causing um, irritability we can see women in in quite a vulnerable position actually and we're also often commonly needing to use steroids in our breast cancer chemotherapy protocols which we know can cause um, mood disturbance and mood change and can actually lead to quite serious mental health crisis in some patients which we really need to be mindful of and and that's why I touched on again I feel and um, that rapport building so that patients feel safe to report those types of side effects with you, I think is really valuable for our roles as nurses across the organisation. And and really why it's so important to have roles like yours that are the care coordinator roles. So we, we touched on that in the intro about this kind of clinical nurse consultant, but a, a multidisciplinary team care coordinator is vital for these sort of cancers. Yeah, I, I did ask a couple of my patients this morning, knowing that I was coming on, not 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 specifically to talk about me personally, but just nurses and, and what we can do to help um, people go through a breast cancer journey. And, and they did touch on the overwhelming um, coordination of appointments, um, education requirement for why they're needing all of those appointments and just the assistance with navigating that journey um, can be quite crucial. Yeah, quite overwhelming to understand that you might need to know a surgeon plus a medical oncologist plus a radiation oncologist, you know, plus have a relationship with your GP um, to manage things in between chemotherapy cycles and, you know, all of the family dynamics that, you know, that can then lead to and and all of your responsibilities outside of having to come to the hospital all the time, often. We're really making um, patients come up here quite a lot. So there's lots of, um, yeah, I I think it is valuable to be able to have roles like like mine and and all of the other roles that help support breast cancer patients within the organisation as well. Something I've noticed with the people I I know who've been impacted by breast cancer is that often afterwards they have to wear a pressure garment on their arm um, 
and that they suffer from something called lymphedema. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so unfortunately if if the breast cancer has spread to the lymph nodes and, and a patient does need to undergo a full axillary clearance and often even when um, patients have to undergo axillary axillary um, radiation, breast cancer radiation treatment, there is an increased risk of um, lymphedema and, and if that presents itself with swelling in the arm, certainly we're getting our breast cancer um, lymphedema specialists which are our OTs and physios involved in the patient's care to certainly organise that type of garment management and certainly another quite cumbersome um, side effect that breast cancer patients have to endure. Is lymphedema painful? I think it certainly can be, yeah, and um, certainly affects quality of life. Um, those garments I don't think are very comfortable, um, but certainly if they're not worn uh, correctly and, and our OTs and physios certainly could better speak to this, but, yeah, definitely. Um, can impair hand function, compare grip, compare like Yeah, right. Of, yeah, can impair a lot of um, functional use of the arm as well as the pain. Yeah, it can be a really, you know, um, Quite overwhelming, I think, side effect for women and, and um, you know, with long-term impact. That, that swelling can have a long-term impact um, on patient in terms of garment wearing, physio, etc. Your number five is how breast cancer impacts women and their families. And, you know, just hearing about the huge burden of treatment, I don't know many women who listening to this don't already feel like they've got hugely busy lives uh, where they find time, you know, find it hard to even get to the gym or do things for themselves. Tell us a little bit about this burden and, and how it does impact women and their families and what we can do about it. Yeah, certainly. So uh, we know that a diagnosis of cancer certainly brings about a huge amount of psychosocial um, and psychological distress for patients. And certainly, as, as we've touched on, um, breast cancer can be diagnosed at any um, stage, you know, from early 20s stage of a woman's life. So, you know, I have patients that are diagnosed breastfeeding. Um, so that's going to obviously um, bring up lots of challenges around caring for a new baby, plus having to fit in all of the breast cancer treatments. Um, also, unfortunately, we have patients that need to undergo chemotherapy whilst they're pregnant. Um, so that certainly um, has its challenges and, you know, huge amount of distress for the patient and their family to have to sort of endure. Uh, certainly um, body image is, is huge for patients. Um, the, the surgery is quite disfiguring. Um, certainly we might need to do delayed reconstruction for patients so they might need to be living um, with, sort of no breasts for, for a period of time and that can, you know, only um, amplify the distress for a patient. So there's certainly many factors um, that influence, that impact a patient and their family when they're going through a breast cancer treatment protocol. And I've never met a child or an adult who one of the most, you know, distressing part is the loss of hair. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some, some women say to me when I meet them and men, oh, it's fine, it's fine. That's, that's the least thing I need to worry about. But then when it actually happens and, and their hair starts to fall out or for, for my younger patients, you know, their children um, are watching them, you know, mum look completely different. Um, and then, you know, how mum is viewed in the schoolyard or in a work environment, you know, certainly really challenging. 
and that hair loss is really quick. So often, particularly if we're giving chemotherapy first, a patient might have just been diagnosed and we're quickly going to start that chemotherapy. So they might only really have just found out about their breast cancer and a week later we're starting chemotherapy and two to three weeks later they've lost their hair. Mm. So they're certainly still probably sore from their originally bi- original biopsy. And now their whole world's been turned upside down and, and plus all of those perhaps care responsibilities, um, work commitments. You know, often women can't work through breast cancer treatment. Some do if there's a lot of flexibility, but a lot of people might not be able to maintain their normal role throughout all of the treatment requirements, time spent at the hospital, etc., which certainly can be a huge impact for women and their families, financial toxicity, particularly because of the longevity of our treatment. So, you know, surgery, recovering from surgery, undergoing chemotherapy if that's required, radiation, you're looking at about four to six weeks of every day coming to the hospital and then the hormone-blocking tablets, if they need to be used for a breast cancer, are used for five to ten years. That's that's not as much of a hospital burden requirement, but there's certainly side effects there um, that, that will be impacting patients around mood changes, weight gain, yes. achy joints. Skin, yeah. Skin changes. Irritability of the skin, just so many things that women who, you know, have so many other components to their lives have to adapt and uh, try and manage. As healthcare professionals or as a friend or as a, you know, sister, brother, whatever, you know, what are some of the practical things that we can do to really help women and men while they're going through breast cancer treatment? I think certainly listening to women, really understanding um, what's what's coming up for them, what treatment might be on their horizon, perhaps not saying, oh, I know someone that has went through that and, and trying to sort of um, minimise maybe even what that particular patient might be going through because it commonly really won't be the same. Even if we have a whole cube of the day therapy unit full of breast cancer patients, every single patient might be receiving different chemotherapy. So it's really hard to kind of compare so I feel sometimes listening certainly there's lots of great organizations out there the Cancer Council Cancer Council Queensland has sort of um, a wig library a turban service this is certainly with you know close to the Royal Brisbane I know lots of other hospitals have um, different support um, around them Um, there's a great organization called Look Good Feel Better that specifically focuses on women going through cancer treatment it does have a program for men too around hair loss with um, sort of tutorials on wigs and makeup and lots of um, the great big um, pharma- uh, makeup companies donate um, supplies for, for women to go through that workshop and my patients say that it's usually quite a great use of their time. Um, psychologists were commonly getting involved in people might have a good relationship with their GP so if, if um, pa- family members or healthcare professionals are speaking to a patient sometimes we do need to get sort of prof- more professional help involved Social workers, uh, welfare workers for that financial toxicity I touched on, we're commonly getting involved. I I think with anyone with cancer, I think it can be really helpful to do anything practical for them. And often people will say, no, no, I don't need anything, but to drop in and do some loads of washing or help someone mow their lawn or do some childcare, create some space where they can have some proper rest can make a huge difference. And people often want to help. So, uh, you know, without being intrusive, 
you know, dropping in a meal. Do you find those things helpful for your patients? Oh, absolutely. I always say if people ask me, don't ask, just do. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than um, asking, I think people get it really overwhelmed by how much communication is coming their way. This is a huge topic which affects a lot of women and to a less extent men but families. Um, so I'm going to now try and summarise this. So number one, what is breast cancer? And essentially it's abnormal cells or growth um, in the breast tissue. Um, And there's an incidence of one in every seven women in Australia at some point will have a a diagnosis of breast cancer. And age is one of the complicating factors of that. So if you're over 50, please, we encourage you to go and get a mammogram. Um, there's a bit of a mystery or myth, I guess, in the in society that genetic risk is something if you don't have a genetic risk, don't worry about it. But what you've told us today is only 5 to 10% of all breast cancers are actually genetic, which means 90% of all breast cancers are just people being unlucky or environmental factors or comorbidity. So please check your breasts. Number two is stages and types of breast cancer. So I'm going to go to stages first and I'm, I'm going to hopefully accurately describe this. So zero is a pre-invasive stage and so people may or may not have surgery plus another modality of treatment. Stage one means that your tumour is less than two centimetres. Stage two means your tumour is two centimetres or larger. Stage three breast cancer means that your cancer has spread to your lymph nodes and stage four means that your cancer has spread to your lymph nodes and beyond to other organs and commonly that can be brain or bone or other parts of the body. Then we've got types of breast cancer. So a hormone breast cancer is obviously driven by hormones which makes sense with women over the age of 50 um, being more likely to be diagnosed. There's the triple negative the HER2 positive, which is caused by a protein. Uh, And then, you know, we talk about curative breast cancer, which I guess in some ways what I heard is becoming a a bit of a tricky thing to say because there's these constant developments, etc. But curative is anything below stage three. And then metastatic cancer is really when people, you know, it's dangerous and and that people will have extremely aggressive treatment and there's a higher risk to life. Um, The the big take-homes I took from this one is that treatment is incredibly individualised and based on the stage and type of your cancer, and the most common type of cancer is hormonal and impacts about 70% of all cancers will have a hormonal basis. Number three is breast cancer treatments, both now and in the future, And I guess what I heard with this is that breast cancer is really, even in the last three years, there's been a huge range of developments around breast cancer treatment, but there are a number of modalities and they are surgery, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, anti-hormone therapy, and then targeted therapies. And so some people will end up with one or all of those modalities based on um, what's been happening. In the future, you've spoken about there's a a great hope that we'll be doing far more genomic sequencing and that we'll be looking to really individualise and specifically target um, 
each cancer based on that person uh, rather than general protocols. So that's a kind of watch this space. Number four is complications of breast cancer treatment. And I guess the thing I've heard is that this is often really aggressive, time-consuming, has huge amounts of implications for women as we desperately try to save people's lives and minimise the return of breast cancer. But because of the long duration of breast cancer, it can often have a, um, a real significant impact on lowering quality of life. But we need to think about fertility preservation, that the majority of women will lose their hair, that, you know, blood counts are going to be uh, impacted. So inflammation, sepsis, neuropathy, fatigue, uh, that lots of women will have chemically imposed menopause, that steroids, as well as many of the other treatments, can impact mood and create mental health crises. So if you have breast cancer, if you're looking after a patient with breast cancer, you have a family member, just to keep in mind that this is a really long-term battle and that, you know, any changes in personality, in skin, in health really probably need to be seen by a GP or uh, a specialist. Number five is how breast cancer impacts women and their families. And I think, you know, you were very clear that there are huge psychosocial and psychological consequences for women and men as they undergo breast cancer. But the big ones, obviously, are body image and disfigurement uh, and, you know, the complications, we've already talked about those ahead, but that a lot of people will not be able to work for up to a year, that people will need assistance with their health, with, uh, you know, the cost of this, even coming to the hospital every day, paying for treatment, um, the the many changes that will that families are going to have to endure and that a lot of these are long-term. So don't just come in and offer assistance in the early days. Think about this months into treatment and even when treatment finishes, um, that integrating back into life after breast cancer can be challenging. Really quite heavy going today with the five things, but really important information. Therese, thank you for what you do and thanks for joining us today on Five Things. Thanks very much for having me. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at Liz Crow 2 and for me it's inject underscore orange we would absolutely love to hear your thoughts ideas or feedback thanks for listening to five things 